Taylor Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, but not right now. Right now, I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you're doing. So what we're doing here is getting you introduced to summaries of what is out there to study and things you should know about. And the master book list is on my website, and it'll be linked to the transcript. And and I'm actually going to add a lot to it this week because I got a lot that that I used to come up with this from my past reading and I want you guys to be aware of it. So this week's topic is, um, it, it's the second part of our sociology section of all this, religion, weird science, and practical linguistics. And you might be wondering why it's necessary to talk about religion as though we don't know what that is, but the truth is how many Westerners think of religion is absolutely nothing like anyone in the Bible would have seen it. I mean, not the pagans and not the worshippers of Yahweh either. In fact, we can't understand much of anything in the ancient world without having a pretty good handle on their religious lives. If we don't, we'll find ourselves making assumptions that seem absolutely normal to us, but would have sounded insane to them. In the Western world, we claim to cherish a separation between church and state, except for when we want the Ten Commandments in courthouses and Christian prayer in school and creationism taught in the classroom. What we are truly interested in is having freedom from everyone else's religion while not quite understanding why they want separation from our religion, too. <laughs> and, you know, just as a funny aside here, have you ever noticed that the Ten Commandments are actually not compatible with the Constitution and especially the Bill of Rights? Right off, the First Commandment stands at odds with the freedom of religion because Sinai said there is no freedom of religion! Ditto for the Second and Third Commandments. And, and when was the last time someone actually went to jail for adultery? Guess what? It isn't illegal. I'm going to link this article that Carmen Imes wrote about uh, this conundrum a while back. But in the ancient world, there was no separation of religion and state, or religion and science, or religion and shopping, or religion and absolutely anything. Everything was religious, and religion was everything, and it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. Secular isn't a word they would have understood, and there was no one day to focus on religion. Even the Sabbath was a day of rest, not the one and only focus of worship. Day in and day out, ancient people were focused on keeping their gods happy and well cared for. Offending them meant famine, sterility of people and crops, drought, natural disasters, defeat in battle, really anything you can think of that's bad. There was no part of life that the gods weren't responsible for and deeply involved in. It was a world of belief in fate, and where science was unnecessary because they depended on what they thought they were seeing with their own two eyes, 
And behind it all were gods making everything work. Science is a way of explaining the operations of the universe and everything in it through observation and experimentation. However, when you think that there are gods doing everything, well, what's the point of looking more closely into it? The rain cycle with evaporation and condensation and precipitation wasn't being taught in Canaanite schools because Baal Hadad and his exploits as the storm god were being taught around the campfires. They accepted that such things were out of control and they crafted stories to explain the phenomena and they lived in ritualistic ways to make sure that the gods would continue to care for them. Science, if anything, was the absolute opposite of religion in the ancient world. Someone, and not something, was responsible for each cosmic functionality of life as they knew it. When it is someone and they are divine, all you have to worry about is how to keep them happy and not to figure out exactly how they're doing what you think they're doing. As for the ancient world's belief in a flat earth, and no, Nimrod did not make that up. It was what everyone believed based upon what they could see with their own eyes and what made sense to them. As to what organs were responsible for different emotions and thoughts, they based their beliefs either on how things felt or pure guesswork, and it wasn't until about 500 before the Common Era that the Greeks figured out what brains were for. I mean, give them some credit. I know some folks who still haven't figured it out. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> and God worked through those beliefs to teach them about himself. As I tell the kids on my other radio show, the Bible isn't Abram's story, or David's, or Moses's. It's God's story to help us understand and love him. And it also isn't a science book. If it was, what science exactly would God reveal to them? How we see things now? Or a hundred or a thousand years ago? Or a hundred years from now? Or even worse, what God actually knows about how things work? Things that we could never hope to understand. Best always talk to everyone, wherever it is they are, and focus on the important stuff, which is not science, even though I love science. And what is important? Who is Yahweh? Who is he to us? Who are we to him? How is he different from every other god worshipped on the earth? Why can we trust him? And of course, we learn about his desire to save us from sin and death and reinstitute his kingdom fully on earth under the reign of the Messiah. Next to that, who cares how rain works anyway? Life in the ancient world, whether Jewish or pagan life, was an act of worship and a reflection of the deities one served. Now, the big city gods, like um, Marduk, Ishtar of Nineveh, Baal of the Canaanites, El of the Canaanites, Zeus of the Greeks or Jupiter of the Romans, and many more, they were the responsibility of the priests. Cities would have patron gods like um, Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, Paul got into trouble over that one. So they had their patron gods, and it was the job of the temple staff to keep those gods fat and happy because they weren't particularly competent or bright. And if they had to do their jobs and get themselves food, things would go terribly wrong. And it was the belief of the pagan nations that humans were created mostly as slaves to serve the needs of the gods after the gods got tired of taking care of themselves. These gods were supremely pathetic, and they had every fault that humans have. 
I personally can't think of anything worse than serving gods who are anything like humans. Just no. We're bad enough without powers. The ancient world was almost entirely polytheistic. And I say almost entirely because evidently Egypt toyed with monotheism during one dynasty, and Persia developed Zoroastrianism, which is a dualistic monotheism. But mostly, they just had a whole bunch of gods, each with a job of making a certain thing in the heavens or on earth work properly. And by monotheism, which we are most familiar with, I mean the worship of one god while denying the existence of any others. What was ancient Israel? That's hard to explain, and scholars are split about really what to call them. Because there were two choices, monolatry and henotheism. You've probably noticed that the Torah and the prophets really do not deny the existence of other gods, which, of course, leads to much debate as to why. And it's really an interesting debate. The plagues of Exodus, for example, are predicated upon being a judgment against Egypt's gods. Not as proof they aren't real, but as a judgment against them. When we look at Deutero-Isaiah, which is Isaiah 40 through 55, we see Yahweh taking other gods to court and demanding answers from them. And the first commandment doesn't deny the existence of other gods. It just forbids their worship. Remember, I have my... Um, Isaiah and the Messiah series that goes over that part of the scripture, and this is one of the things I talk about. So here is the crux of the dilemma. Israel was certainly not monotheistic, believing that there were no other gods before the end of the exile. Okay, they just weren't. They were constantly worshiping other gods and goddesses alongside Yahweh. There is a pottery shard dated to the late monarchy that portray uh, Yahweh with, with a consort, and this consort is Asherah of the Canaanites, who was a mother goddess. And she might have been the queen of heaven mentioned in Ezekiel, or perhaps it was Ishtar. But we also see women weeping for Tammuz. When David is on the run from Saul, his wife Michael places a household idol in their bed to make it look like he was still there. In the wilderness, the Israelites bound themselves to Baal Peor, and these aren't isolated incidents by a long shot because the sacred groves and high places are mentioned throughout the monarchy accounts. Solomon really got the ball rolling when he made temples for his foreign wives to worship their gods in, and he even joined them in his old age. So, monolatry is what Mormons practice. The belief in a great many gods, but only being permitted to worship one. Every faithful believer on earth worships Elohim, who they believe is a flesh-and-bone physical male being, a.k.a. Heavenly Father, but the faithful will achieve exaltation, become gods, and will rule over their own planets. Hanotheism, on the other hand, also involves the belief in many gods. However, one rules supreme at the top of the pyramid. So the Bible was written from a monolatrous standpoint, that doesn't deny the existence of other divine beings, but forbids the worship of any but Yahweh. Upon the understanding that the nations were given over to these other divine beings, but Israel was set apart for Yahweh and owed him their exclusive worship. When they were doing well, they were practicing monolatry, saying, yeah, there are other gods, but they aren't ours, and we only worship Yahweh because he's the king of king and lord of lords. When they fell into rebellion, they were practicing henotheism, worshiping Yahweh 
and a lot of other gods as underlings as well. After the exile, at some point, they became monotheists. However, this is a big however, when we read sectarian writings like Enoch, we see that they traded out henotheism and monolatry for a very rabid form of angelology, where all the cosmic functions that they believed were once carried out by a myriad of gods and goddesses are now handled by angels. It's literally almost exactly the same thing, but a movement in the right direction, and they didn't worship the angels, so that's, that's positive. I do not know when it was that angels took on the role of simply being messengers and worshipers and the Jews, you know, realizing that Yahweh is the master of everything and doesn't need angels or other gods to carry out running and managing the world. But as with their science views that we have grown out of and see as Yahweh being generous and not trying to correct, we see the same things with the existence of a multitude of other gods. We no longer accept them because we are monotheists. Yahweh used their beliefs in other gods, as he used their pre-scientific beliefs, to turn them into a people completely devoted to him as the one true God, who frankly has better things to do than teach high school science. Tied to this, and this really helps us understand why the Israelites worship the gods of the peoples around them, is the belief in regional gods. A belief that everyone in the ancient world shared. They didn't believe in a fertility god or goddess with many names, depending on where you live, but the same story. No siree Bob. They believed that Egypt had Hathor and Isis, who were entirely different than the Canaanite Ashara and the Mesopotamian Inanna. No one believed that these were the same goddesses with different names. And it wasn't until the time of the Greeks that they brilliantly floated the idea that all of the fertility goddesses were simply a manifestation of their Demeter or Aphrodite, depending on what kind of fertility one was referring to, you know, livestock, crops, or, or human. This was actually a brilliant aspect of Hellenization and how the Greeks really dealt a death blow to a great many local religions. It's also why people know the names of the Greek gods and goddesses today better than anyone else's. And so, when you moved into a new area, although you would still believe in the gods you grew up with, you would understand the importance of honoring the local gods who were responsible for everything that happened in their region, which is why they're called regional gods. It's why Baal Haddad was so popular in Israel, because he was responsible for bringing the rain, and Asherah, the babies, and Dagon, the grain. We see this belief pop up several times in scripture. The two best known are 2 Kings 20, 28, when the Arameans were a bit unclear on the concept of Yahweh most certainly not being a regional god. Then the man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a god of the mountains and not a god of the valleys. I will hand over all this huge army to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Well, evidently, that was just too much of an honor challenge for Yahweh to let slide. The second is 2 Kings, chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamat, Sepharvaim, 
and settled them in place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. When they first lived there, they did not fear the Lord. So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The settlers then said to the king of Assyria, The nations that you have deported and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them that are killing them because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. Now, it might seem silly to us, but they couldn't conceive of a being powerful enough to create the universe and everything in it and run it without a lot of help. Remember that their gods were just like them, only with powers. Not like superhero powers, but with the power to make the things happen that we need to survive. One more aspect of their religion is ancestral gods, or teraphim, which aren't really gods, but ancestors that they believe needed to be cared for after death. I mean, imagine how hard it would be to break someone of thinking that they need to provide for their parents in the afterlife, right? How would you even begin to accept that they wouldn't starve if you stopped feeding them? Is it a risk you would even remotely want to take with your dead loved ones? I believe this is why Rachel stole the idols from her father and why he was so desperate to get them back. Remember that worship wasn't what we would always think it would be. At the heart of worship is taking care of someone or something for this or that reason. Gods or dead loved ones, it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference to ancient people. Okay, now I want to diverge from sociology slightly into the realm of linguistics, which is the study of languages. Because this is so badly abused by people who do not study, don't have degrees, and just go with their gut or by how things sound or mean today. And that is absolutely the worst mistake we can make in studying languages. Or in not studying languages, I guess. Especially in a place like America where we have a billion loan words, give or take which have changed so much in meaning that we cannot apply modern meanings to ancient concepts. But you can look on YouTube and read memes and Google pages that do just that in pursuit of various agendas. Let's do one that I've never heard from anyone before, but I told it to my study buddies as a joke and they were at least polite enough to laugh. The word translated spirit is pneuma. Stoic philosophers equated the pneuma with the soul or the inner spirit, but it is also connected to the meaning of breath. But in the Bible, that word can mean anything from the Holy Spirit to demons, breath, inclinations, wind, angels, whatever. It's a big word and we need context to translate it, you know, just like just about everything. But what if somebody has an anti-medicine agenda, okay? You know, like the people who are saying that if you got the COVID vax that you took the mark of the beast or are part demon or Nephilim now or whatever. And they looked in Strong's Concordance and found out that pneuma means spirit, like the Holy Spirit. And then they noticed that pneumonia sounds very similar. And then, added to that, they realized that antibiotics make the pneumonia go away. And so, horrified, they get out their meme generator software, and they use it to craft a scare story that antibiotics will kill the Holy Spirit, or at least drive it out of a person's body. And so, therefore... Big Pharma is trying to steal everyone's salvation. And all because, you know, they didn't understand linguistics and how language actually works. Language is, by its very nature, sociological because communication is everything. It shapes what we know, 
how we think, how we will perceive new concepts, and how we interact with one another. Language is incredibly important, but it must also be respected, and we must not use it out of context to suit our agendas. Even if our agendas are worthy, we must not twist language, or especially the Bible, to shortcut our way to the results we desire. Using pneuma and pneumonia in the way I just described would be a great example of what not to do. And it sounds ridiculous, and it is, but there are people out there who do this. Preying on people and terrorizing them. Fear has this way of bypassing our doo-doo detectors, which is why people use it and why memes on social media are such effective propaganda promoters. Make a claim which you don't have enough space to prove and people assume it's legit. And they like and share without investigation and oftentimes without even knowing how to investigate such a claim. Just FYI, YouTube and Google are not reliable ways to investigate claims. Don't believe me? Google Holocaust denial one of these days and watch them prove that what happened didn't actually happen. Homophones are another big problem, where people assume that two words are historically linked because they sound the same or share the same root word. Dunamis, which is pronounced that way despite being transliterated into English as D-Y-N-A-M-I-S, means power and is used of Yeshua, you may call him Jesus, quite a bit when it talks about him coming in the power of God, the dunamis. Dunamis is closely related to the words dynamic, dynamo, and dynamite, but they do not all mean the same thing. But their meanings are related to one another. But we cannot change out one for another, otherwise we have Yeshua coming with God's dynamite, which makes for quite the interesting picture. But if he'd done that, he could have taught Peter, Andrew, James, and John a much easier way to go fishing, right? Now, that's an example of words that sound alike and actually are linked, but cannot be used interchangeably. Another example is pharmakia, which was a technical term in the first century world for the crime of sorcery, and especially through the use of poisons for the purpose of murder, but also love potions and stuff. It's linked to words like pharma and pharmacy, but they are not equivalents, even though you wouldn't know it from a lot of memes out there. If so, then we would have to look at what medicines were in the ancient world and outlaw them. So bye-bye herbs and essential oils, you've been reclassified as pharmacia and thus sorcery. Because those were actually what were used to poison people, too, if you think about it. You see, it just doesn't work. But the words still share common roots and foundational meanings. They just can't be interchanged. All that is to bring up a homophone that is really abused out there, in religious circles and especially on the internet, with two words that are completely unrelated to one another in any way, shape, or form, except they sound quite a bit alike, which is why they're called homophones. Same sound, homophones. And those are Ishtar and Easter. I mean, look at a world map and ask yourself how a word for the Babylonian goddess of war and prostitution, the Queen of Heaven, used in what would become modern-day Iraq, got all the way over to Western Europe, during an age where no one even knew who Ishtar was anymore, because her empire had been conquered and disgraced and overrun by the Persians and the Greeks and the Scythian armies, and replaced with their deities like a thousand years earlier. And on top of that, 
Why would that be the word used to describe a Passover-related observance in only three Germanic languages, while the rest of the world uses Pascha instead, or a derivative of that? This happens all the time. The word better means worse in Turkish, <laughs> and the same word that means mountain in Japan means a pit in Russia. I will link you a great article on that. It isn't enough for two words to sound alike. They have to be historically linked somehow to be related. And there are similar problems for people who lack understanding of Hebrew who will do some disastrous things with the word et, made from the letters Aleph and Tav. Now, we've run out of time, so I will link an article on that in the transcript as well by my friend Jonathan Brown. Fortunes and whole new religions have been made from misusing words, and we really ought to have more respect for languages.